Well, welcome everybody, and welcome especially to uh, our speaker, Dr. Karim Laham, who's a very old friend and supporter uh, of the college and a believer in our vision. He's going to be speaking this evening on the subject of Islam, Gandhi and non-violence. Um, those of you who don't know him um, will be interested to hear that he's actually coming from a, a legal background. He's a barrister at the Inner Temple in London, focusing mainly on commercial transactions. Uh, but he has a trajectory in Islamic studies as well, a PhD from Pembroke College in Oxford in Islamic studies, uh, as well as a, a range of other activities. And he's a, a fellow of the Tarba Foundation in Abu Zobi, which is a group with which we've had sort of lively communications as a college in the past. And so it's very good, as the Arabs say, Hamzat al-Wassal, to have him here, bringing together these uh, different different worlds and speaking to us this evening. So um, the floor is yours, and I hope you'll be willing to answer any questions. Yes, of course. After your direction. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى Forgive me for sitting down, but um, I have a very bad back. So uh, if you can't hear me, I will stand up. So just let me know. Is that all right at the back, Rima? You can hear? Excellent. Um, the topic tonight is, is quite a difficult one uh, in the sense of uh, trying to capture the topic in the time period allotted, so I'll try and be, um, I'll try and be brief. Um, the lecture I entitled Gandhi, Islam and the Principles of Nonviolence, Ahimsa and Attachment to Truth, Satyagraha. Um, it might seem at first as having two incongruous topics, Gandhi, Islam, we're so used to having polarized opposites um, in our world. Um, so I think the best thing is to set out the premises of my examination of Gandhi, given the diverse narratives that have been constructed since his assassination in 1948. Primarily, and as my main contention, I do not believe Gandhi to be a political figure as we understand the term today. Furthermore, the fact that he never held um, political posts or was ever elected to one I think is uh, buttresses my point this is not the same as saying that Gandhi did not engage in politics which he naturally did it is my further contention that the independence movement that Gandhi prefigured was not primarily a political struggle but a spiritual and a moral one and I think this is an important premise because it precisely determines the analysis of the ends that were sought by him History, Lord Acton once said, should be not a burden on the memory, but an illumination of the soul. This implies the need for a synthesis of the historical flux into an intelligible form that can serve as a basis for illumination. It is a common enough point to agree that the function of the historian is to record socio-political facts, but we would add that it is no less his duty to provide also formulas those relational aspects that are necessary to make those facts intelligible. It is this reality that Acton is referring to, and not was, as was typically designated by 18th century historians, in the words of one Jacobite, history is valeur, conquête, luxe, anarchie, voilà le cercle fatal de l'histoire de tous les empires, which is bravery, conquests, luxury, anarchy, such as the fatal circle of the history of every empire. 
The movement that Gandhi precipitated can be described as a revolt against revolution. And I shall try and explain this. Historical induction provides us with the reality of four revolutions in the post-medieval world. Religious, by Luther. Intellectual, by Montaigne, or Descartes, depends. Political, by Robespierre. And lastly, economic, by Marx. These four revolutions strove for what men desired, namely faith, reason, freedom, and bread. These four also correspond to the seminal appetites of men, thus archetypal and seemingly doomed to be repeated as paradigms in whatever epoch we live. These revolutions, however, have resulted at every juncture in chaos, irrationality, famine, and enslavement to tyranny. Precisely because they represent appetites, not subsumed to a higher power or order other than the communal or personal desire. They were unable to provide intellectual coherence, social stability, and, more importantly, a sustainable code of life. Although Gandhi's revolt sought to achieve the goals of the four types of revolution, he did not seek them as goals separated from each other, but as ordered in a hierarchy, one that was determined by the essential definition of the human being, rather than by a simple characterization of his apparent social needs. There is value in this approach when we examine the political philosophies that have dominated modern thought. The liberal or individualist view maintained that the freedom of choice of individual is an end in itself, the purpose of society being to preserve this. The essential values, however, inherent in the notion of the common good and social justice are liable to be cast aside in this view. The totalitarian philosophy, on the other hand, maintains that the end of life is not the freedom of choice of the individual, but rather the freedom of the group, despite the fact that the group may come to dominate absolutely the life of the individual. The fulfillment of society in the latter philosophy is not to be sought in the individual, but in the collective, the commonwealth, the state. The third view which I think serves as a medium point between the two extremes, is that traditional philosophy which is both communal and personal at the same time. The end or purpose of society here is the achievement of the temporal benefit of all by the cooperation of all. The community may ask the individual to sacrifice his temporal benefit for their sake, and he may do so. However, the community, the state, the commonwealth, does not have the authority to ask or coerce the individual to sacrifice or injure his eternal interests, those that transcend temporality for the sake of the community, the state, and the commonwealth. So with that preamble, uh, let us examine Gandhi. He was born in 1869, uh, now in the city of Porbandar in Gujarat. His father had been chief minister of the princely state, despite belonging to a merchant caste. His mother, Putlibai, was a significant influence on him when she was alive, and she was a member of the Vaishnavite Pranami sect that followed the teachings of the 17th century Gujarati saint, Mahamati Pranath. Her influence on the young Gandhi represented his first opening to equal respect for Hindu and Muslim beliefs, based on Pranath's synthesis of the two religions. The latter sect, for example, did not worship idols, nor allow alcohol intake. They even revered a holy book. In 1883, he married as a 13-year-old, and he had his first child when he was 15. 
1888, and despite much caste opposition to his intentions, Gandhi came to England to study for the bar and was enrolled as a student at my own inn of court, the Inner Temple. He was called to the bar in the summer of 1891 and returned to India hoping to practice as a barrister in Bombay. It is while he's in Bombay, whilst reduced for the most part to drafting legal papers, that he receives a brief from a Muslim trading concern, Dada Abdullah and Company, in Pretoria, asking him to come to South Africa on a year's contract to resolve an internal legal dispute. He was, as it happens, to remain in that country for 21 years, until the outbreak of the First World War. I want to concentrate on two significant events during his time in South Africa. The first relates to his relationship with the Shishti Sufi Sheikh Shah Ghulam Muhammad. The second involves the writing of his treatise in 1909, Hind's Faraj. In 1895, the great Shishti Sufi master of Delhi, Khawaja Habib Ali Shah, sent his muqaddam to South Africa to set up a series of khanakas, uh, which are spiritual lodges for those that for the benefit of the several thousand Indian indentured laborers there. The aim for Khawaja Habib was to cater for the Indian workers' spiritual and social needs, and to this end, the first mosque was built in Durban, together with an orphanage and a school attached. It is around this time that Gandhi becomes an admirer and regular visitor of Shah Hulam, serving de facto as his lawyer, Khanakar records show significantly his own signature as the lawyer on the, way, on the main welfare trust deed signed for the tariqah, which evinces a clear, intimate relationship. The life of the Khanakar must have had a profound influence on the young lawyer, satiated as it was by the spirit of service, the commitment to serve one's fellow man regardless of one's station in life. More interestingly, one can see the practices, for example, of toilet cleaning, which becomes very important for the ashram observances that uh, Gandhi sets up in various stages of his life. The act representing the humblest occupation usually carried out by the lowest caste members in Indian society, being performed by the most eminent spiritual members of the Shishti Khanaka, a practice that was emulated by Gandhi in all his ashrams, whether at the Phoenix Settlement or Tolstoy Farm. The ashrams, in a sense, resembled more the communal life of a Sufi order, than what may have been recognizable to a Hindu observer of the time. There is still much research to be done here, potentially providing much information on the structures Gandhi saw fit to inculcate into the socio-spiritual renewal he was advocating. More will be said on this later. As was stated earlier, the appearance of Gandhi's manifesto, Hind Swaraj, and uh, notice the use of the Muslim appellation Hind, Sva, derived from Sanskrit for self, Raj for rule. A work written during his sea voyage in 1909 from London back to South Africa, where he had attempted to lobby fellow sympathizers unsuccessfully as it happens. It is a significant work and being the only one that has uh, been translated from the Gujarati by the author himself. It is doubtless uh, seldom read now due to its trenchant critiques of modern sacred cows, industrialism, modern medicine, modern transport, the names are just a few. Its importance, however, lies in its clarity, one that is noticeable right from the outset in the preface, and in, and in its synthesis of dissenting English Victorian voices brought together. He had been introduced to Ruskin's Unto This Last, a work written in 1860, 
in the year 1904 by his friend Henry Pollack. And he had read the small book on a night train journey from Johannesburg to Durban. The influence this book had on him is almost incalculable. And yet he recorded what he essentially took away from it. One, he learnt that, he says, he learnt that the good of the individual is contained in the good of all. Two, that a lawyer's work is as valuable as a barber's inasmuch as all have the same rights of earning their livelihood from their work. The way of craftsmanship and self-reliance was seen as the way out of pauperism and indignity, especially the championing of the spinning wheel. Third, that a life of labor, i.e. the life of the tiller of the soil, and the handicraftsman is a life worth living. He continues, The first of these I knew. The second I had dimly realized. The third had never occurred to me. I rose with the dawn ready to reduce these principles into practice. He subsequently set up the Phoenix settlement that same year, just outside Durban, on the basis of what he took away from Ruskin. It is this settlement that was to serve as a model for the later settlements of Tolstoy Farm near Johannesburg, the Sabarmati Ashram near Ahmedabad, and Sevagram near Warda. Gandhi proceeded to serialize a paraphrase of Ruskin's book for the journal Indian Opinion, later publishing it as a pamphlet named Sarvodaya. He reiterates in his book as a main theme the principle that modern civilization poses a greater threat to Indians than colonialism ever did. In the last chapter of the pamphlet, he discusses his understanding of Swaraj in opposition to the Indian middle-class view. The latter identified Swaraj with political power to be attained by driving the British out by force and economic prosperity to be attained by rapid industrialization. This for Gandhi did not constitute real Swaraj, but a mere exchange of one tyranny for another. He believed that in addition to political power and economic prosperity, moral development was above all required. This would ensure, according to him, the right kind of political power and the right kind of economic prosperity that would promote traditional values rather than destroy them. To change India, what was required was the transmutation of its citizens into those that sought the pursuit of the life of virtue. This was to be achieved through satyagraha, attachment to truth. Satyagraha is a, is a compound of two Sanskrit um, nouns, satya meaning truth, and the word agraha, a noun made from the verb agra, which is the root gra to seize with the, with the verbal prefix a, to or towards. And it means this insistence or firm grasping of something. Principally, to follow truth, according to Gandhi, is to achieve Swaraj. True home rule is thus achieved in proportion to self-rule. As we can see, this is a politics of the soul and not a politics of power play. Any other model of politics, he asserted, would result in English rule without the Englishman. For Gandhi, the truth is synonymous with God. So that to say, as the Christian missionaries reiterated whom he met, that God is love, he said was not enough. He further clarified, in God is truth is, certainly does not mean equal to, nor does it merely mean is truthful. Truth is not a mere attribute of God, but he is that. He is nothing if he is not that. 
Truth in Sanskrit is Sat. Sat means is. Therefore, truth is implied in is. God is, nothing else is. Therefore, the more truthful we are, the nearer we are to God. We are only to the extent that we are truthful. So what is Satyagraha? How does it operate? Satyagraha was generally considered to have several stages. The first stage is that of attempting to persuade the other side, the opponent, through reason. Discourse. If this fails, then the next stage is the realm of persuasion through suffering, your own suffering, by appealing to the opponent's unprejudiced judgment so that the opponent becomes conscious once again and potentially subject to rational persuasion. If this stage also fails, then the next stage is for the satyagrahi to resort to persuasion by non-cooperation or some form of civil disobedience. It is in this sense that satyagraha, by serving the end of truth, becomes an effective technique based upon replacing violent coercive acts into non-violent acts, but no less persuasive. The problem here is naturally the objectivity criterion for knowing what the truth that must be pursued and attached to is. The truth for Gandhi is one that is inseparable from non-violence, ahimsa. Again, the word ahimsa comes from himsa, meaning injury derived from the root hymns, to injure, kill or destroy. In his book Ashram Observances, Gandhi defined ahimsa as not the crude thing it has been made to appear, not to hurt any living thing is no doubt a part of ahimsa, but it is its least expression. The principle of himsa is hurt by every evil thought, by undue haste, by lying, by hatred, by wishing ill to anybody. He further added in Young India in 1921, I accept the interpretation of ahimsa, namely that it is not merely a negative state of harmlessness, but it is a positive state of love, of doing good even to the evildoer. But it does not mean helping the evildoer to continue the wrong, or tolerating it by passive acquiescence. On the contrary, love, the active state of ahimsa, requires you to resist the wrongdoer by disassociating yourself from him, even though it may offend him or injure him physically. For Gandhi, it is not possible to seek and find truth without ahimsa, as they are two sides of the same coin. Nevertheless, one could say that ahimsa is the means and truth is the end. To establish the means, one is bound to reach the end of truth. The criterion thus to test the truth is the strict adherence to ahimsa, which determines true action. The test of social truth is therefore action based on the refusal to do harm. A refusal to do harm involves necessarily that one may have to endure self-suffering, which is one of the main arms of Satyagraha. As he explained in 1920, non-violence in its dynamic condition means conscious suffering. It does not mean meek submission to the will of the evildoer, but it means the pitting of one's whole soul against the will of the tyrant. Working under this law of our being, it is possible for a single individual to defy the whole might of an unjust empire. He explains, a man who has realized his manhood, who fears only God, will fear no one else. Man-made laws are not necessarily binding on him. Even the government do not expect any such thing from us. They do not say, you must do such and such a thing, 
But they say, if you do not do it, we will punish you. We are sunk so low that we fancy that it is our duty and our religion to do what the law lays down. If man will only realize that it is unmanly to obey laws that are unjust, no man's tyranny will enslave him. This is the key to Swaraj, to self-rule. Soul force, Satyagraha, is matchless. It is superior to the force of arms. How then can it be considered only a weapon of the weak? Physical force men are strangers to the courage that is requisite in a Satyagrahi. Wherein is courage required? In blowing others to pieces from behind a cannon, or with a smiling face to approach a cannon and to be blown to pieces by it? Who is the true warrior? He who keeps death always as a bosom friend, or he who controls the death of others? There in essence are the two principles that Gandhi enjoined upon those that wish to follow him in making Hind Swaraj a reality. Gandhi's first campaigns in South Africa were largely successful, setting a psychological and structural stage for the later experiments in India. As was stated earlier, Gandhi was in South Africa on behalf of a Muslim firm. It should be added that many of the businessmen that he dealt with, the families that he dealt with, were Muslims with family roots in Porbandor and Bombay. These therefore were familiar people to him. He once recalled, when I was in South Africa, I came in close touch with Muslims. I was able to learn their habits, thoughts, aspirations. I had lived in the midst of Muslim friends for 20 years. They had treated me as a member of their family and even told their wives and sisters that they need not observe Purda with me. In South Africa, Gandhi was confronting a cause that made headlines across the empire, namely the treatment of Indians by the governing and ruling white class. The political significance of such a struggle lay in the fact that Indians were found, found out right across the empire, doing important and necessary work. The British government could not afford, therefore, to alienate the interests of such a vital workforce. In other words, Gandhi's cause could not be ignored, and correspondingly was not ignored. The testing ground of India, however, was to be somewhat different. Whereas the Indian identity in South Africa subsumed religious identity due to the common struggle, in India, Hindu-Muslim unity was not a foregone conclusion. When Gandhi came back to India in 1915, traveling around the country to acquaint himself with the realities on the ground, the necessity for religious unity was foremost in his mind. He believed that such a unity was the only effective basis possible for resisting British rule. <coughs> After the First World War, where Indian Muslims had fought bravely for the mother country, there was an expectation that the restrictions uh, placed upon them during the First War would, would be lifted and Muslim interests would be addressed by the British Raj. Foremost among these was the Khilafah issue. That is the possible dismantlement of the Ottoman Empire when the Allies entered Istanbul. The matter was of some importance, not only to Muslims, but also to Pan-Asians, who saw the Caliphate as the repository of the last autonomous outpost in a vast sea of colonized lands. The Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman army, I should say, had capitulated on the 31st of October 1918, leaving open the worrying question as to who would rule the holy places of Islam. 
The Indian Muslims demanded that all armed forces be withdrawn from the Hijaz, Damascus, Baghdad, Jerusalem, Najaf and Karbala. As is well known, the 1919 Khilafah movement was established by the two brothers, Muhammad Ali, an Oxford graduate, and Shawkat Ali, together with the active participation of Mawlana Kalamazad, an Islamic scholar and student of Mawlana Shibli Nu'mani. This coincided with a conspicuously auspicious period of Hindu-Muslim unity over the unacceptability of the Rawlat bills, passed to allow undetermined preventive detention for those threatening public safety as well as the introduction of expedited trials without a right of appeal. Gandhi joined forces with the Khilafah movement on the basis that all Indians should follow suit as a matter of common religious support for legitimate and necessary Muslim demands. He wrote in 1920, I hold it to be utterly impossible for Hindus and Muslims to intermarry and yet retain intact each other's religion. And the true beauty of Hindu-Muslim unity lies in each remaining true to his own religion and yet being true to each other. What then does the Hindu-Muslim unity consist in? How can it be best promoted? The answer is simple. It consists in our having a common purpose, a common goal, a common sorrow. The three Muslim leaders agreed with Gandhi on aims, especially home rule, but not immediately on method. Non-violence, if accepted by them, was seen as a matter of policy, not creed, a position that was equally held by the Indian Congress throughout the independence struggle. The launch of the non-cooperation movement against the bills began in March 1919 and lasted for seven weeks and constituted the first Satyagraha movement launched in India. Here was an indication of total unity between Hindus and Muslim, right across Indian society. The movement was unsuccessful, in securing a comprehensive adherence to non-violence, and despite some successes, was called off. In November 1919, Gandhi warned the government that unless Muslim demands were met, he would launch a nationwide non-cooperation movement in support of them. Maulana Kalamazad was appointed to the Central Khilafah Committee for Non-Cooperation in May of that year, having met Gandhi for the first time early in the year. During this time, Congress conferences were taking place consecutively with Khilafah conferences. Muslim leaders were attending both and participating in both. In March of 1920, Gandhi announced his non-cooperation Satyagraha. In May, at the Mirut Khilafah conference, Gandhi set out his plans for non-cooperation for the first time on a public platform, a Muslim platform. By June, the ulama of India had issued fatwas in joining Muslim non-cooperation as a, as a religious duty, but more interestingly, and more positively, encouraging cooperation with Hindus and endorsing Gandhi's leadership. By December, there was near unanimity on the program for non-cooperation. Part of the plan for this involved the setting up of national institutions to replace British-run <coughs> institutions. It is in this vein that Azad invited Gandhi in December to inaugurate the Madrasa Islamiyah in Calcutta as a replacement for the traditional Madrasa Aliyah. In his speech to the students extolling their sacrifice and hardship and leaving a known institution for one that was untried, Azad turned to Gandhi and said, It is only a jeweler who can recognize a genuine gem, and you are indeed that, the finest connoisseur of the jewels of sacrifice and genuineness. 
Hindu-Muslim unity during this period was declared a prerequisite for the success of any national movement. At the Khilafah Conference of 1921, held in Agra, Azad went further by stating, If Indian Muslims wanted to fulfill their duty to their country in accordance with the Sharia, then they were bound to become one with their Hindu brothers. He further stated, It was his belief that Muslims could not even perform their faraid unless they reached an accord with their neighbor, their Hindu neighbor. Azad also provided the precedent of the Prophet covenant with the non-Muslim inhabitants of Medina for Indian Muslims to unite with the Hindus against a common enemy. The search for unity was not, however, driven by political expediency in facing the British. Azad explicitly stated this. They, i.e. the Hindus, should have no doubt that the Muslims have embraced them on their own. Their embrace has been extended to them by the will of Allah and his Sharia. The Khilafah movement was short-lived, lasting between 1919 and 1922, but was instrumental in putting into effect an imperial question before the British government and elevating Gandhi to a true national stature. In fact, there is anecdotal evidence that suggests that it was Shaukat Ali that first bestowed the title of Mahatma on Gandhi during that period. During those three years, Gandhi toured the country with the aforementioned Muslim leaders until they were arrested in 1921 and 22. As in South Africa, the Khilafah was a cause that had ramifications well beyond India and its particular problems. Faisal Devji, in his uh, uh, recent book on Gandhi, is right in saying that uh, he said something interesting. He said, only the Khilafah movement, and by extension Islam, raised Indian concerns to imperial or international heights because it had political implications that extended beyond the would-be borders of the national state. Gandhi's uh, perception and understanding of Islam was deepened during that period, and we know that it was mediated through his mother's faith uh, in his early uh, years, and also with the reading that he did in London and in South Africa. He had read avidly, we know, Carlyle's Heroes and Hero Worship, and especially the sympathetic chapter on the Prophet as a hero. While in jail, however, between 1922 and 24, Gandhi took up the learning of Urdu, as well as the writing of his autobiography. It's one of the ironies of history that at the same time he was dictating his seminal book, My Experiments with Truth, his autobiography to a fellow prisoner in Ahmedabad, um, Adolf Hitler was dictating an altogether different kind of book to Rudolf Hess in Landwehr. Um, one wonders, Gandhi got two years, Hitler got, I think, 260 days or so. If he had longer, perhaps he'd come out with something better. But anyway, It was during the, this period that Gandhi also began reading Shibli Nu'mani's two-volume work on the life of the Prophet, as well as Mawlana Hazrat Mahani, uh, his leaves from the lives of the companions of the Prophet. He wrote at the time, I became more than ever convinced that it was not the sword that won a place for Islam in those days in the scheme of life. It was the rigid simplicity, the utter self-effacement of the Prophet, the scrupulous regard for pledges, his intense devotion to his friends and followers, his intrepidity, his fearlessness, his absolute trust in God and in his own mission. These and not the sword carried everything before them and surmounted every obstacle. In 1934, while addressing a meeting to commemorate the Prophet's death, he remembered his time in jail and the reading that he had done. He added significantly, the Prophet was a faqir. He had renounced everything. He could have commanded wealth if he had so desired, 
even as you would. I shed tears of joy when I read of the privations he, his family and companions suffered voluntarily. How can a truth seeker like me help respecting one whose mind was constantly fixed on God, who ever walked in God's fear, who had boundless compassion for mankind? In 1928, at a meeting of the Indian National Congress at Calcutta, Gandhi spoke of the Satyagraha and the necessity of espounding the principle of non-violence. At one point in the speech, a heckler rose up and told Gandhi he was a coward. Gandhi looked back at him and smiled. A Pashtun in the audience that day watched the incident and was deeply impressed by the dignity, the authority of Gandhi's response. His name was Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, and he would later in the same year organize a standing army devoted to action through non-violence, arguably the most formidable foe to face the British Raj. I'd like to say a few words about Abdul Ghaffar and to show how he ties in with uh, Gandhi's stance and understanding of the two principles we spoke about. He was a, a man, a very interesting man. He was born in 1890 and uh, he lived till the age of 98. And one in three days of his life was spent in solitary imprisonment. So, uh, an amazing man. Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan formed the Khudai Khidmatgar, the servants of God. If my pronunciation is torturing the language, please let me know. In November 1929, in the border town of Osman Zai in the Charsada district, is that how you say it? Charsada. Thank you. Bordering the Afghan border, 30 miles from Peshawar. It was also there that he was born, into a Pashtun family, descendants of the Prophet on his father's side. Although he lived to the age of 98, he spent many years, up to 40 years in jail in total. In 1896, just to give some background about how the British saw the Pashtuns in the time, 1896, William Crook described the Pashtuns in the following words, The true Pathan is perhaps the most barbaric of all the races with which we are brought into contact. Pashtuns are cruel, bloodthirsty, vindictive in the highest degree. The commander of British frontier forces wrote in 1859 that it was necessary to carry destruction, if not destitution, into the homes of some hundreds of families, because, he argued, with savage tribes, to whom there is no right but might, the only course open to the British as regards humanity as well as policy is to make all suffer. Indeed, if objection be taken to the nature of punishment inflicted as repugnant to civilization, the answer is that savages cannot be met and checked by civilized warfare, and that to spare their houses, their crops, would be to leave them unpunished and therefore unrestrained. In short, civilized warfare is inapplicable. The frontier tribes were fiercely proud and followed a tribal code of honor known as the Pashtunwali. The insensitivity shown by the British Raj to this code revealed the contempt with which the Pashtuns were held. This is evidenced, for example, by the enactment in 1901 of the infamous Frontier Crimes Regulation, known as the Black Law. To allow transportation or summary arrest of any Pashtun deemed to be troublesome and without any hope of due process. In, in, in fairness, I should say and point out that as early as 1842, an army of 4,500 British soldiers was exterminated 
in a campaign for the pacification of the Pashtun villages. Of this force, one man alone was allowed to survive to tell the tale to the British authorities in Delhi. As a young boy, Abdul Ghaffar attended a mission school, and but unlike his brother, who also attended the same school, refused a commission into the Pashtun Corps of Guides due to the high-handed treatment that he witnessed uh, between a British officer and an Indian soldier. Bowing to pressure from his mother, he did not agree to leave India to study engineering in England and studied at Aligarh University. In 1911, we find him joining the liberation movement established by Haji Sahib of Turangzai, Turangzai Babaji, a graduate of Dar al Alum Deoband, leading to both men engaging in widespread social work and education amongst the villages of the northwest frontier. As a result of this work, hundreds of schools were established within a few years. It was the futility of the guerrilla war established by Haji Sahib during the First World War, however, against the British, that led him to seek other political and social means. As it happens, Haji Sahib ended up by signing a truce with the British in 1923 and retired. In 1919, having become a prominent figure amongst the Pashtun, Abdul Ghaffar was given the title of Badshah Khan at a meeting of the Khans in recognition of the extensive social educational work he had made. Nervous at the prospect of such a display, British troops surrounded Othmanzai and took 60 Khans hostage forcing them to hold a jirga for the purposes of sending him to jail. In 1919, he joined the Khilafah movement. He, uh, he was an avid follower of the journal Al-Hilal, which Mawlana Kalam had set up. And um, uh, in 1926, he, he leaves India for a tour of the Middle East, which we'll get to in a minute. After several faltering steps in founding organizations for the fostering of the Pashtun culture, including the founding of a school in Othmanzai, he founded the Khudai at a pan-Pashtun meeting called to celebrate the re-accession of Muhammad Nadir Shah to power in the neighboring Afghanistan. It came to power actually in a violent revolution. All members were asked to take an oath that obliged them to serve humanity, to abjure revenge, to lead a simple life. Members were asked to sign the following pledge, and to a Pashtun an oath had special significance. I put forth my name in honesty and truthfulness to become a true servant of God. I will sacrifice my wealth, life, comfort for the liberty of my nation and people. I will never be a party to factions, hatred, or jealousies with my people, and will side with the oppressed against the oppressor. And there are several of these, uh, I could read them all out, but the, the one that is important uh, I will live in accordance with the principles of non-violence. And the words he used was Adam Tashaddud. Is that uh, it's an interesting... Abdul Ghaffar had heard Gandhi's message for Satyagraha, but had come to the realization of the value of non-violence independently through a thorough analysis of the life of the Prophet, together with the increasingly visible futility of the armed struggle in the frontier territories. Taking up arms against the British had been undertaken to restore honor, he analyzed, to secure basic freedoms, to secure a unified struggle. Hearing Gandhi's call had established a complementary call to the consciousness of the validity of his own thoughts. By the early 1920s, these aims had not been fulfilled and were proving counterproductive. The peaceable establishment of a Pashtun-speaking school, the Azad School, in 1921, led the British to harass and pressurize the teachers to leave and regain posts in other government schools. 
The British arrested him, placed him in solitary confinement for three years. When he came out in 1924, his leadership was undisputed, the people giving him the title of Fakhre Afghan, the pride of the Afghans. The world had somewhat changed, however, on his release. Contrary to expectations, it was the Turkish Muslims rather than the British or Allied forces that abolished the Caliphate. And the Khilafah movement subsequently fell apart. The Muslim Ali brothers were in jail. Gandhi had just been released himself, ill and seemingly broken. In 1926, his father having died, Abdul Ghaffar went on Hajj, touring the Levant and Iraq. Uh, in Taif, in Saudi in, uh, Arabia, he had wanted to visit the town where the Prophet's arrival had been met by equal volleys of stones and abuse. The Prophet's reaction, Abdul Ghaffar recounted, had been to pray for them, saying, O oh Allah, be their guide, show them thy ways. After visiting the Middle East, including Iraq, Palestine, he returned to India, having better contextualized the Indian national movement with the national aspirations he had seen on his tour. As said before, in December 1928, he's in Calcutta attending the Khilafah conference held uh, there and presided over by Muhammad Ali. A congress conference was also being concurrently held in Calcutta and presided over by Gandhi. Muhammad Ali marred the Khilafah conference by trading insults, losing his temper at a delegate from the Punjab. This contrasted for Abdul Ghaffar markedly with the quiet dignity of the Congress conference, where Gandhi pacified a heckler with the quiet and simple smile. Abdul Ghaffar famously addressed Muhammad Ali, saying, You are our leader. We wish you to grow in stature. How nice it would be to cultivate some tolerance and self-restraint. It is reported Muhammad Ali shouted back, Our wild Pathans come to teach Muhammad Ali now, and duly stormed out. In the summer of 1929, Abdul Ghaffar met Gandhi and Nehru for the first time in Lucknow. Not much is known of the discussions, but on his return to Uthmanzai, he resolved to set up the organization to form a structure through which a socio-political transformation might take place, the Khudai Khidmagar. Abdul Ghaffar summarized Islam into three key concepts, Amal, good works, Yaqeen, certain faith, and Mahabba, love, manifested in the life of the Prophet. It is true that he focused his attention on the Meccan period of the Prophet's mission, where Muslims were under the rule of Quraysh, whereas most narratives, Orientalist as well as native, have presented the Meccan period as typified by Muslim weakness in the face of an overwhelming foe necessitating non-violent resistance as a matter of policy and common sense. Abdul Ghaffar saw this completely differently. Non-violence, he argued, primarily was not a weapon of the weak. It was a weapon of the strong a weapon of the Prophet. He stated to followers in 1929, uh, very famous words now, I'm going to give you such a weapon that the police and army will not be able to stand against it. It is the weapon of the Prophet, but you are not aware of it. That weapon is patience and righteousness. No power on earth can stand against it. When you go back to your villages, tell your brethren there is an army of God and its weapon is patience. Ask your brethren to join the army of God. Endure all hardships. If you exercise patience, victory will be yours. The second lesson to draw from the Meccan period for Abdul Ghaffar was that the strength of the Prophet did not wax and wane, but was consistent with the integrity of his holy character. In other words, the strength of the prophetic methodology was not compromised in Mecca, and then only in Medina given space to fully manifest itself. 
It was consistent. The Quranic surahs enjoining Muslims to seek the reward of God's pleasure, such as uh, Al-Shawra verses 40-43, where the right of reciprocity in retaliation is permitted, but is juxtaposed with a higher divine recompense offered for forgiveness and reconciliation, served inter alia as a strong foundation for Abdul Ghaffar's message. The principle being that forgiveness is the higher path. One carries a divine reward, the other does not. Towards the latter half of 1929, Ghaffar was touring the mountain villages as he had once done. In December, Gandhi moved the resolution at Lahore to launch a wave of non-cooperation for independence. Abdul Ghaffar was in attendance with several representatives of his organization. At midnight, the resolution was passed. Gandhi decided the first move would be against the salt tax by leading the people on the 12th of March from Ahmedabad to Dandi on the sea to make sell and buy salt without paying the government salt tax. The frontier was at the forefront of these disturbances. On the 23rd of April, Abdul Ghaffar was arrested after giving a speech at Uthmanzai. He was taken into custody just outside Peshawar in Nakithana, where there were no Khudai Khutmatgar until then. Upon hearing of his arrest, the inhabitants joined his movement en masse. Afraid of an insurrection, British troops massed and stormed the town on the 23rd of April, arresting the leaders of the Khudai Khutmatgar. A large group of demonstrators ended up in the Kisakhwani Bazaar. Two British armoured cars were ordered to drive into the square at high speed, killing several people. It is claimed that the crowd continued their commitment to non-violence, offering to disperse if they could gather their dead and injured, and if British troops left it. The British troops refused to leave the square. The protesters thus remained with the dead. At that point, the army ordered troops to open fire with machine guns on the unarmed crowd. The Khudai Khidmatgar formed human walls, it is reported, to face the waves of bullets. Many cried out, God is great, Allahu Akbar, and clutched the Quran as they went to their death. It is said that around 400 people died in this way that day. Most bodies later found had more than 20 or more bullet wounds. The onslaught went on for six hours as Khudai members were chased down across the alleys and byways of Peshawar. One regiment of, uh, of, of the army, the Garwal Rifles, <coughs> heroes of the First World War, dramatically refused to obey their officers when ordered to fire. They were all subsequently court-martialed and sentenced to long sentences in prison. Out of the crucible of this disaster, the principle of non-violence was established and was upheld and led to the celebration of the heroism of the Pathan fighters right across the world. Congress leaders were astonished at the integrity of the Khudai. When news of this atrocity reached London, Commission of Inquiry was established under the auspices of the Lucknow High Court, deciding that the level of violence visited on the Pathans was unjustified. The Khudai had been tested and not found wanting. From his jail, Abdul Ghaffar asked the Muslim League to help their cause, to let the world know of the atrocity. The League, according to him, responded by saying that they supported an alliance with the British against the Hindu majority. They refused to cooperate. On this basis, Abdul Ghaffar said, he and his Pathans joined the Congress. The son of Abdul Ghaffar later years 
was approached by a former British soldier named Bacon. His son was called Ghani. He recounts, He told me, Ghani, I was the assistant commissioner in Charsadda. Is that right? Did I say it right this time? Inshallah. The red shirts would be brought to me, Khudai. I had orders to give them each two years rigorous imprisonment. I would say, are you a red shirt? They would say, yes. Do you want freedom? They would reply, yes, I want freedom. If I release you, will you do it again? They would reply, yes. Bacon said, I would want to get up and hug them. But instead, I would write two years. I hope, uh, I've gone over a little bit. I hope this hasn't been too long-winded. Um, but I wanted to give a window into the Satyagraha movement of the 1920s and 30s. It's been too easy in the last 50 years or so to essentialize Gandhi's message, either as an all-Hindu affair or else a political cause, uh, simply a political clause. Another important point is that neither Gandhi or Abdul Ghaffar had any personal enmity against the British. Uh, Abdul Ghaffar actually sent his daughter to be educated here. They saw the actions of the Raj as a dishonorable stain on an otherwise traditional civilization such as theirs. Gandhi never pressed his advantage politically when England faced grave dangers herself, lest it might be said that he took unfair advantage by them. Those writers in Victorian England who had revolted against the onslaughts of industrialism and imperialism, the twin destroyers of traditional England, might be said to have awakened the ideas and principles in Gandhi. His reconstruction program, however, begun in the study rooms he shared with the intellectual legacy of Ruskin, the arts and crafts and the agrarian movements, needed structures of delivery. Those structures for, those, for the delivery of these universal ideas and principles, I would contend, were found in the Islamic social structures. In the end, when one looks for the true adherence of Satyagraha in an organized social context on an unprecedented scale in India or South Africa, they are prevalently to be found amongst the Khudai Khidmatgar. Whereas the principle of non-violence was exercised as a creedal principle for them, the Indian Congress was to remain in its, in its absorption of the principle as a matter of policy, contrary to what Gandhi had advocated himself. One wonders whether one can find a better expression of what Gandhi sought so fervently. Thank you. Precise, but also atmospheric evocation of a very uh, <laughs> unique time. Uh, I'm wondering, when I try to process this, exactly where you're taking us with this. Is it a kind of invitation to revive this concept of uh, Islamic validated principle of non-violence in the contemporary context? Or are you just providing a of historians at Al-Su on a particular time that has no particular and as a president of ourselves, or um, are you uh, lamenting an earlier and apparently the relatively lost era of Muslim, Hindu, brotherhood and conviviality? What's the moral of the story? I think all of those things, really, in one sense. But um, I, I think that... I said all of those things. He mentioned several possibilities. What were you trying to do? Etc. And um, I think what I was trying to uh, just open a slight window onto some things that I didn't know about, which uh, essentially how we tend to think of um, we tend to think of the seerah or the life of the Prophet as as very in a very one-dimensional terms. And I think what the Indian experiment shows is that there are multiple dimensions 
to how one can learn the wisdom of action with foes, opponents, and the other, rather than the obvious uh, uh, smash his face and and uh, res- uh, the, the notion of reciprocity is is valid in one sense, an eye for an eye, an injury for at least within the context of of, uh, of Islamic civilization, subject to various parameters and rules. However, there's a higher uh, expression of, uh, in a sense, altruism, which is to put the other person first. Uh, Not to put him first as somebody who is doing something wrong, but to try and reach his consciousness in a way that that is not obviated by coercing him into some kind of understanding or um, um, acceptance of, of your point of view. And I think these, these are things, that the most exciting element uh, for me as a student of this material is what the possibilities are if we would but explore the life of the Prophet properly. That's really what I took out of it. The idea of separating the periods of Mecca and Medina in the Prophet's <coughs> life as this is a time of weakness, You've just got to watch yourself and, and, and walk uh, very uh, quietly and so on and so forth. And then Medina, you know, things can let rip because one, we're in power. And this is totally false. Totally false. And I think it's proven in the historical record that the weapon used by the Prophet in Mecca takes uh, a level of courage that is well beyond anything that necessarily we see, for example, in Medina where he's part of a social state and uh, he has uh, um, he has partners and so on and so forth. People uh, within the polity of the Medinan uh, society. So I think that's an interesting thing for somebody like me. Is that time? Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else got any input at this point? Yeah. I've got a slight mystery. You might be able to also to elaborate. I've been living in Peshawar. And I've heard it said there of Gandhi that it's not very popular there because when Bhagat Singh was sentenced to death by the British, he didn't speak up for him as strongly as they expected in that area. Because that begs the question of whether Gandhi would have seen it his role to speak up for somebody Sentenced to death like that. Could you throw any light on, or is this a sort of left-wing smear against Gandhi, which, which I'm sure there, there are many? Well, the, the problem with Gandhi is he complained towards the end of his life that nobody listens to me. Um, he, he used to say this was his main complaint. And um, uh, when India uh, took the turn that it took, and the Muslim League decided, and the Congress decided its own path, the people who were left out in the cold were. Abdul Hafar Khan and Gandhi, and Maulana Kalamazan actually, uh, uh, who's another very important figure, should be looked at as a an attempted reformer of Islam, somebody who was a traditionalist who uh, belonged to the usual traditional theological schools. His mother was descended from a very famous uh, Sheikh of Hadith in in the Hijaz and so on. So he he had a proper upbringing in Calcutta, and then decides, is open to the modernist uh, interpretations of Islam coming out of Cairo and Egypt. And uh, so that's another interesting story. What happened to him? How did he... Uh, but but, uh, but the Gandhi and Abdul Ghaffar were left out in the cold. Uh, they killed Gandhi and they locked up Abdul Ghaffar. And the, the stories that come out 
in the historical fabric that, that we, we can study and look at is problematic because, as you say, people say, well, he didn't do enough for X, and he didn't do enough for Y, and he didn't do enough for this guy, and um, he was actually partial to, to the Hindu side. I mean, very famously, he made a very big mistake um, with Jinnah, where he, he, uh, he chided him in some way by saying, "Never." I can't remember the exact words, perhaps somebody can, but uh, he said to him something like, um, never before has a... basically chided him that he was breaking away from the tribe of India. You know, uh, and because he was... Jinnah was his grandfather converted to Islam from Hinduism, and he was very uh, sensitive about it. So this idea that somehow he had broken away from the tribe was combined with the feeling also that Gandhi was saying to him, because you converted to Islam, or your family had converted, you know, you had broken away from Islam and joined the sort of uh, descendants of Taimur, etc., etc. And so there was a lot of sensitivities in play. On your particular case, I don't know the story, um, but I think what we have to do is chase up uh, sources um, for these things, rather than take um, anecdotal uh, hearsay. Um, and I, I think that uh, there's a lot of work to be done still on Gandhi, which hasn't been done. Where exactly did he, did he situate himself? But, you know, we have his words, and I think they speak clearly. Next. <coughs> Do you reckon Gandhi <coughs> in his views as he went through life. Um, you said it wasn't a political movement uh, to start off with, it was moral and spiritual. But did he actually become a little bit political as he went along uh, and, you know, through the uh, fight for freedom of India and so on? Um, from the limited reading I've done, no. Uh, there are, obviously, people change and they have various uh, nuances that they add as they meet uh, events and problems. But um, I decided to concentrate on the early period because I wanted to establish a particular continuity with South Africa and so on in India. But actually, you could have, I could have done this talk on the later period, in the late 30s, uh, early 40s. And no, he didn't actually, surprisingly, he doesn't change. He gets disappointed because other people change around him. Um, and you see, he wasn't a nationalist. Uh, this is the problem. Uh, the whole of the, the Congress was fighting for a national entity, nationalist entity. <coughs> Gandhi wasn't interested in the nationalist entity. You know, he's very Ruskinian. He's, he's looking for something else. Um, and the problem is the people around him weren't. They were wanting, they were the, 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 uh, the zeitgeist of the time was to seek nationalist, uh, self-autonomous um, rule. And so um, I think this is where there is a conflation sometimes. And he, he made mistakes, yes. I only say that because he says he did. So. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Um, I was just wondering whether the principle of the non-violence and the way you seem to expand it is taken up by the Patans uh, at the time. Uh, what was it called? The Khidmats? Khidmats, yeah. Um, whether um, uh, you seem to, at least in your closing statements, as something which was um, 
uh, on Prophet Muhammad's superiority. We know that the Muhajirun were considered as a, of a greater station than the Ansar. <coughs> Yeah. But instead of considering one superior to the other, would, would you agree with the idea that it's just from a traditional perspective, it's more that um, there's, it's a strategy and there are different circumstances that demand each strategy? Because the Khulashid that God did evolve out to a failed attempt at guerrilla warfare, you mentioned in the First World War against the British. Well, it succeeded in Afghanistan. Because the same day he founds the Khudai Khafatkar, um, the, the Afghanis, uh, by a violent insurrection, return Nadir Shah back to power. So um, <coughs> you would expect that there would be the obverse. of and The reaction that Abdul Ghaffar takes is not to say, good on you, this worked in nearby Afghanistan, so um, this is what we should do again. And, uh, but he doesn't. He goes the other way. I think because he's convinced. Now, as to within the context of tradition, who is more superior, I'm not a alim, I don't know, I would leave that to uh, the chef to perhaps talk about. I don't know. Do, do, what else? Thank you, can I ask? Oh, good. Uh, yeah, so we can follow now. The Sorry, I can't hear you. Is there any particular model? What do you think is the particular resonance for today in this I think better information, if people see Islam in, in, in negative terms uh, because of what's um, being reported everywhere and um, I think people should read more and know more about um, what's taking place and those that are able to do so to help that along are, are much needed, I think. Uh, but I don't, I, don't, um, I don't pretend to know what resonances we can derive from these examples from early 20th century for today. Yeah, I don't know. There have been Palestinian attempts at a non-violent resistance to the overwhelming fact of Israeli occupation, for instance. I think there have been, yeah. yeah. I mean, one criticism, for example, that, that you do hear today in America and elsewhere, and in the 1940s and 50s with the Martin Luther King um, campaign, is that, well, that's all very well, but it actually these kind of things don't work against modern foes. I mean, really, the British were gentlemen at the end of the day, and you could get away with this kind of uh, quid pro quo kind of actions and so on. But, but, you know, facing the Nazis, for example, or, for example, Israelis, or whatever it might be, wouldn't actually work today. And I think the, uh, the Northwest Frontier is a good example to see where the British were not very, actually, they weren't very nice it wasn't like the rest of India. The Northwest Frontier was considered to be the the linchpin of the British Raj. If they lost the Northwest Frontier, if they lost control of the Northwest Frontier in policy circles, it was considered to be the loss of India. And hence the concentration of military coercion in that part of the world at the time. Um, and we know about the Waziristani campaigns in the 1920s. Most of the troops... I don't know if you know, but most of the troops pulled out of, uh, of Iraq in the First World War uh, ended up in Waziristan. 
especially the Gurkha rifles. Um, and they fought a very nasty war. Um, it wasn't pleasant at all. Um, when aerial bombardment was being discussed in 1931, uh, the banning of aerial bombardment, um, there were many voices in government that were asking for, uh, for an exemption for the Pashtun lands. You know, that it's, we can carry on bombarding them. Um, the thing I didn't mention also is castration, uh, according to the son of Abdul Ghaffar, uh, was used regularly for um, problematic uh, Pashtuns. Yeah, they would grab them, they would castrate them. And so you had a lot of nasty things going on. So it wasn't a, a kind of a you know, nice a campaign where people could, uh, could afford to have these kind of views and morals. It was very nasty, and these people took it. And they said, uh, what's interesting, again, just to reiterate, is they said, we are following the Prophet of Islam in doing this. This was his weapon. This is the superior weapon in the situation we find ourselves in. I was wondering whether, since I've been involved a little bit in reading about Muhammad um, Pictor, whether you encountered any reference to his relationship to Gandhi at all? Because we were quite close at one point, and Gandhi wrote a very interesting obituary of his life and the world in which his writings had helped him to better understand the Islam than I think No, I haven't. There, there is a book called The Cambridge Companion to Gandhi. Um, and it's got a very nice picture of Gandhi. It's very glossy. Um, and the paper is very good quality, and the card is very... I mean, it's a really nice book to, to look at. And they use Eric Gill's uh, Gill song print. I mean, it's a really handsome book. Um, there's only one problem. When you open the index, uh, there is not one single mention of Abdul Ghaffar Khan. There's not one single mention of Maulana Kalam Azad. Nothing. Not one. Um, and so you wonder, this was published in 2012, so what are the scholars doing? So don't buy the book. <laughs> Any last questions? Have you, have you considered writing to the authors? No, I, I'm, uh, I'm a lawyer, I, I daren't take on academics. <laughs> <laughs> that you make is quite irrespective of whether you're right or not. It's a lacuna which needs to be filled. Why not point it out to them? It you're may right. be ignorance, it may be prejudice. The look of it. Yes. But the fact is, it's clearly incomplete. Well, thank you for your endorsement. I'll consider it. As a lawyer, you can write a very well. <laughs> um, I was just wondering what um, intrigued you to get into Gandhi's um, life? Uh, Artif MTS. Would you like to expand In private. <laughs> Non-violence in the face of student provocation. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the inspiration.
I'm just wondering, you know you said um, you had um, I think about Farhan Gandhi there came with the groups and formed the organization um, how well was the interaction between both groups? I know um, separately they did do well and everything happened. How often and how well was the interaction between the public people of the groups? Which groups, sorry? You know, um, Gandhi and his people and Abdullah Afar and the people. Well, I think this is the thing that I was trying to, to put across, which is there wasn't Gandhi, his people, and Abdullah Afar and his people. They were, he was Gandhi's people and Gandhi was his people. That, that was the notion of the unity that they had. And it was unity not based on theology. You know, it wasn't based on the same aqidah that they shared or anything like that. But the, the methodology, the social philosophies that they had, they could find sources and seeds for those universal things within the social philosophy of India that they can interact with and live with and cooperate with. I think that's the that's the important message. Uh, of course, Hinduism is distinct from Islam, completely different understanding, and so on. But we also have, um, um, you know, I'm rambling, but um, we, you know, we have evidence for, for example, certain Sufi tariqas uh, rejecting the eating of meat in certain parts of India as a form of respect and solidarity with the religionists. Uh, of Hinduism that were in that area. So there is, there's a lot of sensitivity shown by uh, Muslims in India, which I, I think perhaps is no longer recorded or talked about much. Um, because it should, these things should be revived. Uh, it's all about putting the other first. So what, what good book would you recommend us to read? <coughs> I think the best book on, on these things, I don't know. I mean, I don't know really. I mean, the, there are the Shishtiya order has published a lot of things that have come out um, uh, on in uh, in India in Delhi. There's some interesting books that have come out. Um, I think if you look at where what the role of the Shishtis uh, in society, especially in Delhi, and the way that they interacted, and some of the people I mentioned there, um, I would love to read more about it. Because they were very orthodox, but at the same time they had mechanisms of making people feel comfortable around them. Um, you know, these Shishti sheikhs would walk into a meeting of, of Hindus or Sikhs and so on, and there would be a feeling of comfort with them, not a feeling of being threatened by them in any way, or a form of intransigence. And I think that kind of discourse needs to be revived. I think I read somewhere also things, amazing things in India, like the, uh, the foundation of the temple, the golden temple in Amritsar, was laid by a Muslim. <coughs> and I think it was a Shishti, I'm not sure. I don't know the re rationale behind it and what took place and so on, but... Anyway. I don't think that answers your question, does it? No, it does we're running out of time, but any other interventions? Um, you mentioned that three, um, the three Muslim leaders agreed with Gandhi's policy, but not on the method. Could you just clarify that a little bit more? She asked whether whether the uh, that um, I had stated that the three Muslim leaders had agreed on policy, but not method, with Gandhi, and could I elaborate on that? Um, 
Well, the two Ali brothers, the, the method is essentially the satyagraha and non-violence, uh, ahimsa, and they, they agreed to go along with it as a matter of policy. Maulana Kalam Azad in 1940, even until 1940, wrote to Gandhi, I, I can agree with you that it is a good policy to have non-violence because it is a higher form of, of, uh, of uh, persuasion and so on. But he said, I cannot agree to it as a matter of creed. Right? And the Indian National Congress held this view as well. The only people who didn't were the Pashtuns who made it a part of their own creed. It was a, it was a creedal thing. They said, these, they said the source of this is in our religion and we take an oath and a pledge to uphold this principle. No one else in India did that. Yeah, Gandhi and some followers and so on, but nothing organized. They didn't agree to that. Uh, the Ali brothers agreed with non-violence as a policy, but then they said uh, military insurrection was the path to follow. So after 1922-23, they go the other way. Uh, Maulana Kalamazad stays with Gandhi, and in fact he's the first um, president of the Congress, um, but he he says, uh, I can't go all the way with you on that. That's what I meant by In a really wide-ranging and I think thought-provoking discussion, so we're really grateful to you. And Thank you for having me. We hope at some point you'll be writing this up so that the benefit can become more widespread. Thank you very much. Thank you.